Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about true crime and cocktails. I'm your bartender for today, Sloan. And I'm your crime tender, Trish. Today, we're going to bring you the story of the chameleon killer. It's a kind of a deep dive into a a serial killer that just, he, he went by many identities, hence the chameleon killer. We really hope you enjoy. Grab a cocktail and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. to another round of bartending with Sloan. Today we are making my college classic drink. Like this was one of the two drinks we always hosted house parties at my house because I was the extroverted introvert. I wanted people to come over but I didn't want to leave and that's how my roommates were too. So we always hosted. People knew that I loved to like whip up drinks and figure out new concoctions and whatnot and this was one of my two most requested pre-bartending skills cocktails. So this is what I call a dream sickle and it's stupid easy to be honest. All you need is whipped cream vodka. I highly 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 recommend Smirnoff. I know a lot of people go towards Pinnacle because it's cheaper quote-unquote but where we shop at like the Smirnoff is two dollars more expensive and the flavor is completely different. Also, Pinnacle Whip has been very hard to find lately. I wouldn't even know because I don't look for it. Like, the Smirnoff is so good. We have the Smirnoff vanilla and whipped cream that we taste test with all the time. And the whipped cream always makes the drink so much better. So, if you're going back and forth between vanilla or whipped cream, highly recommend getting the whipped cream Smirnoff vodka. Like, 12 out of 10 will elevate your drink to the next level I guarantee we both bartend at a restaurant and I had a lady the other day asking about our vodkas and I told her that we use Smirnoff flavored and she like turned up her nose and I was like, lady, let me tell you, like we have absolute, we have Smirnoff. I've tried Pinnacle in college days and Smirnoff always wins out. Yeah. So Smirnoff whipped cream vodka and then the second ingredient, two ingredients is orange soda. Sunkissed, Fanta, does not matter. Pour to your heart's content. If you want measurements, I would do like 1.25 ounces of the whipped cream vodka to like 3 ounces of soda. On the TikTok and Instagram stuff that we will, like the videos that we release. It's basically equal parts. You will see that I free pour to my heart's content. And really, like as long as the drink tastes good to you, it tastes good. And with whipped cream vodka and the orange, like it, it's always going to taste like a dream, dreamsicle. It's just how much more or less alcohol do you want to it? But this is one of those drinks that will go down super smoothly. Highly recommend. Like I said, back in my baby game days, this was one of my easiest, best drinks to make. And it always got my people fucked up. So enjoy and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another case with your crime tender, Trish. So getting into today's case, we are going to be covering 
the chameleon killer, which I feel like I've kind of heard about, but not too much. I was just kind of scrolling on Discovery Plus and I saw a little documentary thing. It was like a two-part piece and it was labeled the chameleon killer. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And as I got into it, I was just like, hold up. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to cover that. And our story slash case, I guess, takes place in, well, it starts out, I should say, in Allenstown, New Jersey on November 10th, 1985 when a hunter in the woods of Bear Brook State Park found a barrel. And I know what you're thinking. You're just like, okay, it's a barrel. That's never a mannequin. (laughs) Apparently a barrel is never just a barrel. (laughs) So he originally thought, oh, someone's like poaching deer or stuff, and they're just storing it in there till they can like get it out under like cover and whatnot. But then he kind of starts noticing, like, a kind of foul stench. And he's mm-hmm. like, okay, a little, little worried about this. So he actually decides, you know what? If it is deer, I'll feel stupid about it. But also, I just don't feel comfortable about this barrel just being in the middle of the woods. Yeah. So he calls police and he waits for an officer to respond. Once the officer arrived, he asked the hunter to please wait, like, at the officer's car. He took the rifle that the um, hunter had and put it in his trunk because he was like, I don't want this guy to be, like, the reason this barrel is here and him just come following up behind me and shooting me. So, I mean, heads heads up for the officer. But So, the officer... Ask the hunter where he saw the barrel. He set, he points him in the direction and that. And the officer goes up the hill and he spots the barrel and he approaches it. And he starts noticing the smell also. But he's a police officer, so he can't just be like, all right, weird. Mm-hmm. He actually has to inspect the barrel. So he is tasked with opening the barrel and he immediately sees a set of teeth, and other remains, and he knows this is bad. He has to call for backup. He has to call for, like, the coroner and all that, like, special crimes division, everything. He knows this is something that is not just really in his realm. He has to give an initial police report about, like, his findings, and... He, to this day, still, like, he says it was horrific. He remembers opening the barrel and seeing the teeth and that. And then just what he describes the contents as looking like, and I'm sorry if you're squeamish or if this might be your favorite food ever. I'm so sorry. I'm probably going to ruin this for you. He describes it as looking like cottage cheese, which... Fair. I mean, yeah, figure it's a sealed container that 
as the bodies are decomposing, I mean, it's got to be releasing acids and stuff. So it's just breaking your fat and that is just breaking down however it can. So I get it. He said, he goes, I feel like that's kind of disrespectful to like describe it that way, but that's like the best analogy I could give. So like I said, he radios dispatch to get major crimes out there immediately. And he later finds out through like them looking into like the contents of the barrel and that, that it wasn't just one body. It was actually two bodies a woman and a child. So when the bodies are examined, it is discovered that they both died from blunt force trauma to their head. Sorry, I keep burping. It's that beer. (laughs) We're used to cocktails, not (laughs) So they both died from blunt force trauma to the head. And the medical examiner said they were also then dismembered and like thrown into this container. But they couldn't determine exactly how they were dismembered. They couldn't determine, like, I guess a weapon or whatnot. They just knew that they died from blunt force trauma and they were dismembered somehow. That's about as far as they can go because there's no DNA evidence, anything like that. There's no fingerprints on the barrel. They're just... The community, like I said, the community was asked if anybody was noticeably missing, but... It led them nowhere, but when they start kind of looking at where the barrel was and, like, surrounding stuff, they realize there's a trailer park that's kind of basically directly behind where this barrel is found. Like, there's some woods between it, but there's a trailer park and there's this barrel. So, they start looking into this trailer park, and it just leads them to a whole, like, slew of potential suspects because it's not like just a run-of-the-mill trailer park it's apparently like a very like seedy kind of trailer park and they come across their first suspect which is a man by the name of robert stefan he was a known pedophile and happened to live almost directly behind where these bodies were found in the park so i mean You know one of the victims is a child, so, I mean, I would understand why they're probably looking at him. But besides the fact that he's a known pedophile and everything, they start, like, kind of looking into him, and they start developing, like, a tunnel vision for him and just trying to make pieces fit. Just trying to make him fit as their suspect. And... Like I said, he's no pedophile, so he's far from being innocent of crimes. It's just he's not their suspect. Yeah. He is all he is eventually prosecuted for child sex offenses, but he's ultimately ruled out of the murder investigation. And that's like I said, he's just he's an overweight and out of shape man. It was determined he wouldn't physically be able to put the bodies in the barrel and then take the barrel to that part of the woods and just he would have never done it without anybody noticing so then they start looking at other suspects which include the owner of the land which his name is ed gallagher and ed's also kind of a shady looking suspect he has this property on the land it's kind of like 
a little mini junkyard almost. It's very messy, and the community had been after him for years to clean it up. And among the debris on his property just happened to be some empty barrels. You don't say. <laughs> so, I mean, he looks real good. You have this barrel in the woods that is full of two dead bodies, and then you just happen to have similar looking kind of barrels on his property. But he claims to have like no knowledge to this crime. Another like thing that made them really look into him is the fact that there's a driveway slash like pathway that leads like to his property to basically where this barrel was found. So again, you're not looking too great. And again, when he's asked about it, he basically says he knows nothing, doesn't have anything to do with this crime. Like, he is summoned to the police station and ultimately complies to it and under oath says he knows nothing about this. He claims he has no knowledge of it and couldn't even give a list of people that had potentially been on his property, which... We later find out it was a bold-faced lie. Shocking. <laughs> the bodies of the un unidentified woman and child are eventually buried in Allenstown. And the case just goes cold because, like I said, there's nobody reporting them missing. They've released these sketches. Nobody's come forward. And DNA is not what, like, it was. Yeah. So, well, is, I should say. So, they're just at a dead end. There's, like I said, there's basically no DNA to even look for a killer and stuff. So, they're just lost. And, the case, like I said, the case goes cold. And police just kind of keep hoping maybe something will click for somebody. They'll see, like, this woman in child's face and just be like, eventually be like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. Fast forward to 2000, almost 13 years later, when Detective John Cody starts reading about the bodies found in the barrel, and he's intrigued by this case, and he knows to break open this case, he needs to identify these bones. So he starts reading. He gets very intrigued. He's like, look, if we keep digging... I know we can we can crack this case. We can at least maybe identify these these victims. He ends up going to the crime scene in person because pictures can only do you so much. You need to actually physically go and see like the area so you can maybe think of like something people didn't think of back then. So he goes he doesn't really notice anything different, and he starts walking back, but he takes a slightly different route, and when he's wandering this different, like, little route back, he notices in the woods what he thinks is just, like, a rock or something sticking up out of the ground. So when he kind of starts approaching this, what he thinks is a rock, he notices that it actually looks like another barrel sticking up out of the ground. 
And as he gets even closer, he sees a piece of plastic in the barrel. And when he moves the plastic aside, he sees something white. And he thinks it's human bones. And when he shines his light, he notices it's not just human bones. It's small human bones. Mm-hmm. So this case suddenly goes from two unknown bodies to now you have another barrel and yet another two bodies found in this barrel. So now you have four unknown victims that police at the time have to assume it's the same killer because it's the same barrel, like type of barrel, everything. There's so many similarities. So when he finds this barrel, he immediately calls it into dispatch. The former officer that was working the case is still an active officer. He hears the call and he's immediately taken back to the first crime scene. And he starts feeling awful. He feels like he didn't do his investigation right. He's like, I guess, he goes, I, I didn't, why am I seen enough? How long has this barrel been out there? He just starts thinking, you know, what if, what if, what if. Mm-hmm. So, because the second barrel was found and it was outside the original search radius, the police ultimately start widening their search of this woods again just to see if maybe they find another barrel. But <laughs> I guess think, thankfully for us, they don't. But I mean, this one was, I guess, basically partially buried. So who's to say there's maybe not another one that's buried, but it just hasn't surfaced yet. So news of the barrel kind of reaches out to the community. Medical examiner has, you know, gone through the contents. They find the two bodies. They find that they have also died from blunt force trauma. They, again, don't have any possible identification of the bodies. And they know that one of the victims is younger than the other, just like the last barrel. But in this case, they know that it's two children, not a woman Mm -hmm. and a child. And the community just starts questioning this case. They're wondering... Was the second barrel there all along? Was the barrel placed there after the first? Is there a serial killer? Was there a serial killer in the area? Is this their dumping site? Like, everything. They just want to know, are these cases related and should we be worried? So, remember police have buried the first two victims. And sadly, they have to do what nobody wants to do. They have to exhume these other two bodies just to see if maybe they missed something, if maybe they're related somehow, anything like that. So police start looking, like I said, they look into the contents of the second barrel and the first, and they notice that the material used to cover the bodies was like a rubbery canvas, and they actually identify it as old, like an older material, like military flotation device so then they start thinking is our killer you know former military Uh kind of look into those leads but again it doesn't really lead them anywhere and also they try to start looking into maybe you know 
where the barrels delivered in state, like anything, because they know the barrels are like the same, but they just it again leads them to dead ends. So the police do extract some DNA to try to match it, but it doesn't give them an identity of any of the victims, but it does reveal that the bodies are a mother, her baby girl, and her older daughter, and then you just have an unrelated young girl. Next, the skulls are then sent for facial reconstruction because when this is all happening, like I said, this is, like I said, 2002. So, if like, stuff has advanced. They're able to now use computer systems to get a better facial reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And they do get some fresh images of the possible victims. And they're hopeful that maybe these new ones will spark, like, a thing. So they release them to the public and for the first time in 15 years they have like a sense of hope that they're gonna get um like somebody that's like yes know these people but still they get nothing so they go from having all this hope and thinking they might have finally cracked this gotten something and it's just it's washed away so now we go to 2011 and a woman by the name of Rhonda is looking into the case also She's just kind of like a local web sleuth, <laughs> kind of like a local little crime junkie that likes to deep dive into stuff, and she starts taking an interest in this case and really wants to see justice for these victims. She wants to get them identified. She wants to try to find the killer. Mm-hmm. So she reaches out to Detective Cody because he's the most recent officer on this case, and at first he ignores her. He just like sees her message being like, hey, are you the active detective on this case and he just thinks oh we don't need you (laughs) ignores her six months later she reaches out again and he finally says you know what what do i have to lose he goes yes i'm the officer working on it and that and i don't remember if she said she had a blog or if he kind of looked into her and saw that she had a blog relating to the case and realize that she has researched so many different avenues and she has like good solid proof like for these avenues so then they kind of start almost working together start trying to follow her different avenues and again they lead back to ed gallagher and he is again brought into police quarters to start like questioning again but police, again, get nothing. And they just have to leave it go because that's all they can really do. Mm-hmm. Rhonda, though, is not related to the police. She is just a local person. And as long as he doesn't press charges, she can keep badgering him all he all she wants. So she just keeps, like, trying to talk to Gallagher. And then, like, he doesn't really give her anything. But finally, in 2014... He looks at her and says, look, (laughs) you're looking at the wrong people. Look at Bob Evans. So then that makes them go, who the fuck is Bob Evans? This name has never come up. We don't know this name at all. So they have to look into it. And as an Ohioan slash Northerner, 
I hear Bob Evans and I think of a local like breakfast place and it makes me so sad that Bob Evans is tied to a murder scene like case. I'm like, ugh, we'll never be able to eat there the same. <laughs> I don't know. Take me and we can find out. <laughs> it's so good. Oh. But you had me at breakfast. It's oh like I said, it's a northern thing. I think the Furthest south I've been able to find one is Tennessee. It's only one state up. Yep. Granted, we're at the bottom of one state. but <laughs> It's definitely worth a trip. My one question is, do they have cinnamon rolls? I think they do. I think they do have cinnamon rolls. All right. We'll be back for this recording later, guys. <laughs> Come on, Trish. Nope. Nope. <laughs> All right. So, they're given the name Bob Evans. So, Rhonda asked, you know, where is that name? Where did that name come from? And he said, it's someone that he had worked with and had done some work on the property. And someone that was very, like, aloof, weird, didn't talk about himself. He just, like, really was very tight-lipped. And said that Ed Gallagher had been, sorry, had met. Bob Evans in the late 1970s. So we're talking, this is 2014, like that they finally get this name. 1970 is when he knows this man. So they worked at a mill together. It's now an abandoned mill, but like at the time, that's where they worked and that's how they knew each other because they had overlapping shifts. If I can speak, overlapping shifts. And one story he recalls is actually walking in on Evans one day, sleeping, having a nightmare of some sort. And he just remembers hearing these screams coming from him. And they just have stuck with him because he said they were just so, like, gut-wrenching. It was almost like, I don't, like, he was fighting something or, like, remembering something terrible. So police and Rhonda immediately start looking into Evans because, I mean... This is a name they don't know. They haven't looked into. Maybe it's going to give them that lead. But they find out he's just like a phantom. This name is used and people have heard it and like can be like, oh yeah, I know who they're talking about. But there's no trace of him. Like The mill was eventually scrapped once it was closed down. And parts of like the equipment and like contents were taken to Ed's property so that's where these barrels came from mm-hmm. and like I said Bob Evans isn't really like they're not able to trace him but like I said people remember him people have stories and like use his name in that and someone like that actually helped scrap the mill remembers working with Bob because he was an electrician so he was there to help turn off the machines, make sure it was safe for these people to start pulling these all this stuff out. And they said they took the scraps to Ed's, and among the scraps were the barrels. And they said maybe, you know, these barrels happened to be, you know, the same ones that these bodies were put in. So wow. again, that's either leading you to Bob Evans or Ed. So like I said, they look in... They run out of, like, trails to give them any information about Evans. And that's kind of, like, where they stop with that because 
again, there's nothing leading them anywhere else. They just have to kind of hope maybe something will spark one day. Yeah. Little do they know that in Manchester, New Hampshire, back in 1981, their suspect, Bob Evans, is dating a Denise Bodine. And she has a daughter named Lisa. Like I said, this is back in 1981. So Uh we're a few years back. The first victims were discovered in, I believe, 80, yeah, 85. So this is 81. In 81, he's dating Denise and she has a daughter named Lisa And after Thanksgiving of 1981, Denise and her daughter go missing. The family never reported them missing just because they were having financial problems, so they just believed that they had left because of financial reasons. So after Thanksgiving, Denise is never seen again. She's never heard from, she's never seen again. But Lisa remains in the custody of Bob, who posed as her father. In Cypress, California, he eventually is arrested in 1985 under a new name, Curtis Kimball. And he is arrested and charged with Driving under the influence and endangering the welfare of a child. Fortunately, he fails to appear in court and he just took a new alias by the name Gordon Jensen. And he moves to Scotts Valley, California. And he ends up abandoning Lisa in an RV park there in 1986. In 1988, he was, again, arrested under another name of Jerry Mockerman for driving a stolen vehicle. And in 1989, he finally received a three-year prison sentence for child abandonment and under a plea deal, an additional charge of child abuse was dropped. Because you see... When Lisa was taken in by police after she was reported as being abandoned at this RV park back in 1986, she was taken in, like I said, taken by police to kind of do an interview, see if she can, like, tell them, you know, who her father was, maybe where her mother was, anything like that. And they don't really get anything from her, but they do learn that her father had been touching her inappropriately. She doesn't, you know, they, like, apparently, they use, like, the doll method where they have, like, the doll and they kind of talk about private parts and that, and they ask, you know, were you ever touched somewhere and that, and she points on the doll that she, where she was touched. So that is how the, the child abuse thing like happened but I guess whatever plea deal they had they figured the abandonment and everything else would just 
be a longer sentence or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1990, he was actually paroled. So he was only, <laughs> so three year prison sentence, only in jail for one. And in December of 1999, under yet another new pseudonym of Larry Vanner, our, sus- our suspect has resurfaced. He began dating California-based chemist. I'm going to end up probably butchering this, but I think I remember how they said it. Yoon Jun. And she introduced him to her family and everything. And eventually married in an unofficial ceremony in 2001. And this poor woman in June of 2002 disappeared. And if I were to disappear or you were to disappear, I know we would be her friend. (laughs) Because her friend immediately thought something was wrong. She was like, no. Now she wouldn't just leave and stop talking to me. No. <laughs> no. There's no way. So she contacted police about this. They didn't really do too much. They were just like, I mean, people move away. They lose touch. Yeah. Unless you can give us some concrete proof. We're not, we're not, we can't really look into it. So her friend contacts Larry, or who she thinks is Larry, and says, you know, Let me talk to June. Mm -hmm. And he replied with, June doesn't want to talk to you. If you keep call, if you keep trying to get like in touch with her, look for her in that, we're going to call the police again. June's already called the police. Mm -hmm. So she calls, her friend calls the police again and goes, listen to what Larry just told me. And brings up, you know, that he's basically like very hostile and says, June has called them. And the police go, June never contacted us. So then they start thinking, okay, something's up here. So then they go to the house that June and Larry had and do a search. And before they even walk in the door, they notice a smell that you can only describe as death and when they walk in the house and look and find what they are hoping they were not going to find they are not prepared for what they see they find june under pounds of kitty litter and it was determined that she too died from blunt force trauma they were never able to find the murder weapon because what they suspected as the murder weapon was wiped clean Mm -hmm. so they can't say that that was it but they know that she did die from blunt force trauma and then he tried to cover it up so larry is arrested in 2003 and first pleads no contest to the charges of her murder and and like partial dismemberment he apparently had tried to dismember her and I don't know if he just didn't have the right tools or like he just couldn't get like H had made it to where he was just not able to do it anymore he like partially stopped but like she did have signs that he tried to dismember her and 
during like a break in like the trial, mm-hmm. one of the investigators and and like maybe his attorney or something, like they were just kind of like casually chatting, and this investigator kind of goes, "Hey, I know you have some DNA from him, Matt." I want to use it as a potential, like, paternity test for Lisa. And he hears this, and when court goes back in session, he suddenly stands up and wants to change his plea to guilty. I don't know if he thought he was going to get lenient sentence, or, like, they are just going to be like, okay, cool, you're guilty, awesome. Not going to look into this anymore. Well, they... Don't just leave it there. They find a fingerprint match, which linked him to the aliases of Jensen and Kimball. So then that links him to the child abandonment case. So it's even more that they're able to pin on him because he's still in California at this point. Uh-huh. And so he gets convicted of June's murder because, again, he pleads guilty. So, I mean... He can't really talk his way out of that one. He sends to 15 years to life. And when they do eventually do this DNA test, they show that he's not Lisa's biological father. So they start looking to see who, you know, her family could be and all that. So in 2010, our suspect is finally found to be a Terry Petter... Rasmussen. Yeah, Rasmussen. Which makes me think of Anastasia Rasputin. (laughs) But he is his true identity is finally found out. So he has all these pseudonyms, hence why he was nicknamed the Chameleon Killer because he used all these fake names to basically build himself a new life. And everything, get, like, all these women to, like, be with him and stuff. Unfortunately, in 2010, he does die of natural causes while in jail. So, we can't get any more information out of him through, like, verbal. But we do have his DNA, so we're Mm -hmm. able to use that for stuff. So, into, yeah, in July of 2016, San Bernito County Sheriff contacted New Hampshire authorities in reference to Rasmussen being connected to the area. So then they use DNA to then link him to the middle child of the ch- the children found in the barrels in Allenstown. So they know that he is this child's father. She is the only victim of those four that to this day does not have a name. All they know about her is that she is his child. Also in 2016, Denise Bowden, however you want to say it, is considered missing after 35 years. She's still, her body has still never been found. So whether she ever will be found or maybe she is alive but like is just so scared and like after all this time it's like it doesn't matter who knows but she is finally declared a missing person 
In 2017, Rasmussen is announced as possibly being responsible for the deaths of at least six people, including Denise and the four bodies that were found in the barrel. And in 2019, we finally discover the identities of the two children and the woman found in the barrels in Allenstown. They are Marlise Honeychurch, Marie Vaughn, and Sarah McWaters. And they are finally kind of identified because another local internet sleuth started looking into it. And then she started kind of being like, okay, we have this guy's name. We know the pseudonym he went by at this time. Let's start kind of reaching out Uh and seeing if we can. And they find someone who goes, who was related somehow to Marlise, I think it was. And she goes, yeah, you know, she was dating this Bob Evans guy. Mm-hmm. So that's how they're able to figure out her identification and then the others. Marlise was married before she moved to Allenstown. And her husband her ex-husband, I guess, never reported her missing because he just believed she left for her own reasons and that. And it wasn't until, you know, a couple years later that he was like, man, I really want to be a part of my daughter's life that he hires a PI to start looking into, you know, where they're possibly at so that he can reach out and be like, hey, let me be in my daughter's life, even if it's just like phone calls or like letters, stuff like that. And the PI goes and looks, and he's able to kind of track her for a short time, but then he's like, the trail just ended. There was no use of, like, her bank. There are no statements. There's nothing. He goes, usually, he goes, it was the weirdest thing, because normally, you know, bank statements and that, they just, like, kind of slightly stay active, but it was just, like, they were used, and then one day, nothing. So, like I said, you have the identities of these of at least three of the four. And they believe that Rasputin, Mucin, whatever. Uh-huh. I'm not want to say Rasputin this whole time. <laughs> they believe that he is the one that killed him, which you gotta think if the, like I said, if he did kill him, which they're pretty sure he did. Right. He killed one of his own children. Wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. So... Before he started killing, he was actually a part of the military. So then that gives them the military tie-in from the flotation device. He also was married to a woman who had twin daughters, a son, and another daughter with him. And they separated, but they moved a few times, just kind of stay. Like, still in the same area, but not together. And he actually was charged with assault a few different times. And it was finally in 1975 that after an assault charge and an arrest, he was left by his wife and children for good. And lucky for them, they got away because 
his children recall him being just terrible to them. His his children that have spoken out about, you know, him as a father have said, you know, if his mo- if their mother would not have left, they could have been another set of victims because his son actually recalls a time that as a form of punishment, he had a cigarette like burned into his back multiple times. Damn. And he just remembers the smell of like burning flesh. Yeah. He also his son also struggles with the fact that he too is a former military man and he just really like he looks if you look at his baby pictures next to his father's baby pictures, he looks just like and so he is having like this identity crisis of what if I turn to my father? Yeah. And then just like his other kids that have spoken out, you know, they're just again left with the what ifs and that. So, and they've actually gone to Allenstown to where they're, she's like a half sister because she's related. And somehow they went to where their sister was like, the barrel was and then they went to the cemetery to see her again she's still unknown as far as the name but like they have gone and visited and if you watch the chameleon killer little documentary you can see all this it's in the part two and it's just it's heartbreaking to watch and like listen to especially the son just go through like you see him saying there being like what if i just snap one day I will say, as recently as 2021, police in Louisiana announced that a new genealogy shows that the unidentified child from the barrels might have relatives from Pearl River County, Mississippi. I know where that is. I was going to say, I don't know if you know where that is. I do. But. Pearl River is huge, but the county, I know where that is, too. Yeah. But they might have been able to link this child to someone in Mississippi which maybe eventually might give her a name mm-hmm. but that's the last update that I really have on this but this case just literally I was just like how many names is this guy gonna have like I get why he's called the chameleon killer jeez yeah. makes sense yeah but I wanted to cover it because like I said, it's not one that I think I've ever heard another one do. And if I have, it's maybe only one other podcast do. Yeah. So it was very interesting. And like I said, there's a Discovery Plus little uh, documentary on. I'm sure there might be some other ones. I'll link it in the little show notes and that and a couple of websites that I used. But yeah, guess we will kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another last call with your bartender, Sloan. Before I get into our actual last call, we have some life updates for you. (laughs) Trisha's, yeah, Trisha's are way more exciting, so I will let her start off with this. (laughs) So, I got a new job, which, it's not, like, too exciting, but it's working at, like, basically a liquor store here, so, um... (laughs) 
I think that's very exciting because when she's leaving the service industry, yes, mostly she still has some like service industry parts to her job, but it's it's less stressful. Different is less stressful. I'm still dealing with alcohol, and they do have this liquor store is like a strange one. It's family owned, and that, and they hold tastings and stuff like that. So every now and then they might need a bartender, and since I'm trained as a bartender. They said, if I'm willing to, they'll use me so I could still bartend. But It's just a really awesome opportunity. So everybody take a moment. Round of applause for Trish. Woo! <laughs> We're so excited. She is getting out of especially the corporate <laughs> restaurant industry. Ooh. And then, like, my news is not near, exci- <laughs> near as exciting. Um. Y'all know, like, I fell on my face a couple of months ago, and, like, ever since then, I have not been feeling right. Like, I've felt nauseous. Pretty much, I did not align it with my head injury until after I took this test, but I was talking with Nate about all of this, and he goes, I think we need to take a pregnancy test to make sure. So, we took a pregnancy test. I'm not pregnant. (laughs) Now we're, like, thank goodness, because y'all know, like, I am not equipped to be a mother. <laughs> and poor child, I I would not, honestly, like, I would probably put the, the child up for adoption because I am not fit to be a mother. But luckily, we're not. And I guess the next step is to figure out how to handle this medically to see yeah. what the fuck is up with me. Because, whew, it's... It's a lot going on right now. But like I said, Trish's Trish's news was way more exciting. But she came in last night and I said, before you go to the bathroom, I have to let you know why there's a pregnancy test in the bathroom. And she was like, oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, so like this is kind of a joke, but like also it's not a joke because I do recognize the fact that there are a lot of women out there that want to be mothers and like struggle with infertility. And while... I was diagnosed with my infertility whenever I was 14 years old. So I've literally grown up with it. So it's my coping mechanism to use humor with things that I feel uncomfortable with. So while I am laughing about it, I do recognize that this is like a very serious subject for most people. Yes. So like, I'm not trying to make anything feel, I just, this is my personal experience. This is what's going on in my life this week. Trish had big news. I have big news. <laughs> and that was us sharing. So, I'm, I, once again, not trying to be offensive to anybody. Just this is where we are in our lives. And my life can be pretty offensive sometimes. Yeah. Anyways, back to the last call. So, today we talked about the chameleon killer. And I thought it would be fun to talk about chameleons. Okay. Seems fair. So, the biggest mistake people make about chameleons is that they think that peop- that chameleons change based on their surroundings. Yes. And while that is somewhat true, there are a lot of factors that go into it, such as mood. I would be a flaming hot chameleon all the time. Oh, yeah. There's red hot angry for the most part these days. Um. But also, like, changes in light, changes in the temperature, humidity of their environment, all sorts of things can go into the into their coloring in that moment. It's not just them blending into their surroundings, which is a, 
I thought that was what happened. Yeah. Chameleons have eyes in the back of their heads. Not literally, but they have like each of their eyeballs have 180 degree views. So altogether, their eyeballs have 360 degree views. So like they kind of do have eyeballs in the back of the, in the back of their heads. As somebody who somewhat works in management in the service industry, we, I have people. I have eyeballs in the back of my head. I was like, I have people that think that I do have eyeballs in the back of my head. So, like, I kind of wish I did sometimes, but it is what it is. Chameleons like it hot. Not me. But 59 unique sp species of chameleons live on the island of Madagascar and are found nowhere else. And that's, like, very close to the equator. Yeah. Chameleons come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. The largest chameleon by length is the Malagasy giant chameleon, also known as the Ustalots chameleon. It is almost 70 centimeters long, and it's one of the species that are specific to Madagascar. On the other end of the scale, you also have Brookesia migra chameleon, which is also from Madagascar, and they are like 30 millimeters long. And each of these creatures have freakishly long tongues. That was my tongue being disgusted. Chameleons have extremely powerful tongues, speaking of. Okay. Speaking of. I mean, they have to because that's how they like eat their food. They yeah. Most of them get like eat bugs or whatever, but... Yeah, it means that they can grab their prey within fractions of a second, making it impossible for the prey to get away. If humans could do this, it would make grabbing that last biscuit from the tin much easier. True. I do go for the last biscuit every yeah. time. Most chameleons eat, eat on things you wouldn't want to find on your dinner plates, aka bugs and <laughs> shit like that. Have at it. Chameleons are tree huggers. Our best friend Logan would enjoy that. A yes. little cute little fact. We all know that guys like to show off. So like most animals, male and female chameleons look different. Though not particularly social animals, males usually have horns and spikes while the females do not. So that's how you can tell them apart. Chameleons have really good eyesight for lizards. I would hope so with their 360 degree eyesight. Right. And chameleons take a while to hatch, but they don't live very long. Interesting. So, those are my fun-ish facts for chameleons. I would never own a chameleon personally. I'm not interested in lizards or rats or snakes or anything of the sort. I just want to stick with my dogs. I've had a cat once. It did not work out well. Trish is a fan of the cats. <laughs> it's my boys. I get that. And I love your boys because they're your boys. But I'm just saying for me, dogs are where it's at. I do not want reptiles or amphibians or... Yeah. No, thank you. But anyways, that is our last call for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode about the chameleon killer and the fun chameleon facts. Mm -hmm. If you did, please leave us a rating, a review, send us a message, a comment, all that sort of stuff. On Spotify and Apple, you can review and rate and all that kind of stuff. We also have all of our social media. It's Tequila She Wrote across the board. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Our email is tequilasherote at gmail.com. If you have case recommendations mm -hmm. or cocktail suggestions. We also have our Patreon set up. 
is a lot more caught up thanks to Sloan. <laughs> but um, for as little as $2 a month, you can get ad-free episodes, you can get bonus episodes, and then if you contribute a little bit more, you get even more content and some merchandise and stuff like that. Again, it's Tequila She Wrote. And then, yeah, just check us out every Tuesday and Friday yep. on your favorite podcast platform. platform. And thanks for coming along on this Hot Mess Express ride today. Toot toot. Beep beep. Beep. <laughs>